Section 16 of History of Egypt, Volume 1, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 2. The Gods of Egypt, Part 8. The theologians of Hermopolis alone decided to borrow the new system just as it stood, and in all its parts. Hermopolis had always been one of the ruling cities of Middle Egypt. Standing alone in the midst of the land lying between the eastern and western Mies, it had established upon each of the two great arms of the river a port and a custom-house, where all boats travelling either up or down stream paid toll on passing. Not only the corn and natural products of the valley and of the delta, but also goods from distant parts of Africa brought to Siouf by Sudanese caravans helped to fill the treasury of Hermopolis. Thought, the god of the city, represented as Ibis or Baboon, was essentially a moon-god, who measured time, counted the days, numbered the months, and recorded the years. Lunar divinities, as we know, are everywhere supposed to exercise the most varied powers. They command the mysterious forces of the universe, they know the sounds, words, and gestures by which these forces are put in motion, and not content with using them for their own benefit, they also teach to their worshippers the act of employing them. He had discovered the incantations which evoke and control the gods. He had transcribed the texts and noted the melodies of these incantations. He recited them with that true intonation, ma cruo, which renders them all-powerful, and every one, whether god or man, to whom he imparted them, and whose voice he made true, sma cruo, became like himself master of the universe. He had established the creation not by muscular effort, to which the rest of the cosmogonical gods primarily owed their birth, but by means of formulas, or even of the voice alone, the first time when he awoke in the new. In fact, the articulate word and the voice were believed to be the most potent of creative forces, not remaining immaterial on issuing from the lips, but condensing, so to speak, into tangible substances, into bodies which were themselves animated by creative life and energy, into gods and goddesses who lived or created in their turn. By a very short phrase, Tumu had called forth the gods who order all things, for his come unto me, uttered with a loud voice upon the day of creation, had evoked the sun from within the lotus. Thought had opened his lips, and the voice which proceeded from him had been an entity. Sound had solidified into matter, and by a simple emission of voice the four gods who presided over the four houses of the world had come forth alive from his mouth, without bodily effort on his part, and without spoken evocation. Creation by the voice is almost as great a refinement of thought as the substitution of creation by the word for creation by muscular effort. In fact, sound bears the same relation to words that the whistle of a quartermaster bears to orders for the navigation of a ship transmitted by a speaking trumpet. It simplifies speech, reducing it, as it were, to a pure abstraction. At first it was believed that the Creator had made the world with a word, then that he had made it by sound, but further conception of his having made it by thought does not seem to have occurred to the theologians. It was narrated at Hermopolis, and the legend was ultimately universally accepted, even by the Heliopolitans, that the separation of Nuit and Sibu had taken place at a certain spot on the side of the city where Sibu had ascended the mound on which the feudal temple was afterwards built, in order that he might better sustain the goddess and uphold the sky at the proper height. The conception of a creative council of five gods had so far prevailed at Hermopolis, that from this fact the city had received in remote antiquity the name of the House of Five. Its temple was called the Abode of Five, down to a late period in Egyptian history, and its prince, 
who was the hereditary high priest of thought, reckoned as the first of his official titles that of Great One of the House of Five. The four couples who had helped Atumu were identified with the four auxiliary gods of thought, and changed the Council of Five into a great Hermopolitan Aeneid, but at the cost of strange metamorphoses. However artificially they had been grouped about Atumu, they had all preserved such distinctive characteristics as prevented their being confounded one with another. When the universe which they had helped to build was finally seen to be the result of various operations demanding a considerable manifestation of physical energy, each god was required to preserve the individuality necessary for the production of such efforts as were expected of him. They could not have existed and carried on their work without conforming to the ordinary conditions of humanity, being born one of another, they were bound to have paired with living goddesses as capable of bringing forth their children as they were of begetting them. On the other hand, the four auxiliary gods of Hermopolis exercised but one means of action, the voice. Having themselves come forth from the master's mouth, it was by voice that they created and perpetuated the world. Apparently they could have done without goddesses, had marriage not been imposed upon them by their identification with the corresponding gods of the Heliopolitan Aeneid. At any rate, their wives had but a show of life, almost destitute of reality. As these four gods worked after the manner of their master, thought, so they also bore his form, and reigned along with him as so many baboons. When associated with the lord of Hermopolis, the eight divinities of Heliopolis assumed the character and the appearance of the four Hermopolitan gods in whom they were merged. They were often represented as eight baboons surrounding the supreme baboon, or as four pairs of gods and goddesses, without either characteristic attributes or features, or, finally, as four pairs of gods and goddesses, the gods being, as far as we are able to judge, the couple Nu-Nuit, answers to Shu-Tafnuit, Hahu-Hehit to Sibu and Nuifk, Kaku-Kakit to Osiris and Isis, Ninu-Ninit to Sit and Nephthys. There was seldom any occasion to invoke them separately. They were addressed collectively as the Eight, Kumunu, and it was on their account that Hermopolis was named Kumunu, the City of the Eight. Ultimately they were deprived of the little individual life still left to them, and were fused into a single being to whom the text refer as Kunuminu, the god Eight. By degrees the Aeneid of thought was thus reduced to two terms, take part in the adoration of the kings, According to a custom common towards the Greco-Roman period, the sculptor has made the feet of his gods like jackals' heads. It was a way of realizing the well-known metaphor. It is a way of realizing the well-known metaphor which compares a rapid runner to the jackal roaming around Egypt. As the sacerdotal colleges had adopted the Heliopolitan doctrine, so they now generally adopted that of Hermopolis. Ammon, for instance, being made to preside indifferently over the eight baboons, and over the four independent couples of the primitive Aeneid. In both cases the process of adaption was absolutely identical, and none would have been attended by no difficulty whatever, had the divinities to whom it was applied only been without family. In that case the one needful change for each city would have been that of a single name in the Heliopolitan list, thus leaving the number of the Aeneid unaltered but since these deities had been turned into triads, they could no longer be primarily regarded as simple units, to be combined with the elements of some one or other of the Aeneids without preliminary arrangement. The two companions whom each had chosen had to be adopted also, and the single thought, or single atumu, replaced by the three patrons of the nome, thus changing the traditional nine into eleven. 
Happily, the constitution of the triad lent itself to all these adaptations. We have seen that the father and the son became one and the same personage, whenever it was thought desirable. We also know that one of the two parents always so far predominated as almost to efface the other. Sometimes it was the goddess who disappeared behind her husband, sometimes it was the god whose existence merely served to account for the offspring of the goddess, and whose only title to his position consisted in the fact that he was her husband. Two personages thus closely connected were not long in blending into one, and were soon defined as being two faces, the masculine and the feminine aspects of a single being. On the other hand, the father was one with the son, and on the other he was one with the mother. Hence the mother was one with the son as with the father, and the three gods of the triad were resolved into one god in three persons. Thanks to this subterfuge, to put a triad at the head of an Aeneid was nothing more than a roundabout way of placing a single god there. The three persons only counted as one, and the eleven names only amounted to the nine canonical divinities. Thus the Theban Aeneid of Amun Mat Khonsu, Shu, Tafnuit, Sibu, Nuit, Osiris, Isis, Sit, and Nephthys, is, in spite of its apparent irregularity, as correct as the typical Aeneid itself. In such Aeneids Isis is duplicated by goddesses of like nature, such as Hathor, Selkit, Taninit, and yet remains but one, while Osiris brings in his son Horus, who gathers about himself all such gods as play the part of divine son in other triads. The theologians had various methods of procedure for keeping the number of persons in an Aeneid at nine, no matter how many they might choose to embrace in it. Supernumeraries were thrown in like the shadows at Roman suppers, whom guests would bring without warning to their host, and whose presence made not the slightest difference either in the provision for the feast or in the arrangements for those who had been formally invited. Thus remodeled at all points, the Aeneid of Heliopolis was readily adjustable to sacerdotal caprices, and even profited by the facilities which the triad afforded for its natural expansion. In time the Heliopolitan version of the origin of Shu Tafnuit must have appeared too primitively barbarous. Allowing for the license of the Egyptians during Pharaonic times, the concept of the spontaneous emission whereby Aturnu had produced his twin children was characterized by a superfluity of coarseness which it was at least unnecessary to employ, since by placing the god in a triad, this double birth could be duly explained in conformity with the ordinary laws of life. The solitary Aturnu of the more ancient dogma gives place to Aturnu the husband and father. He had indeed two wives, Iusuite and Nebthapit, but their individualities were so feebly marked that no one took the trouble to choose between them. Each passed as the mother of Shu and Tafnuit. This system of combination, so puerile in its ingenuity, was fraught with the gravest consequences for the history of Egyptian religions. Shu, having been transformed into the divine son of the Heliopolitan triad, could henceforth be assimilated with the divine sons of all those triads, which took the place of Tumu at the head of provincial Aeneids. Thus we find that Horus, the son of Isis at Buto, Ari Hasnofir, the son of Nit at Saïs, Kanumu, the son of Hathor at Esna, were each in turn identified with Shu, the son of Aturnu, and lost their individualities in his. Sooner or later this was bound to result in bringing all the triads closer together, and in their absorption into one another. Through constant reiteration of the statement that the divine sons of the triad were identical with Shu, as being in the second rank of the Aeneid, 
the idea arose that this was also the case in triads unconnected with Aeneids, in other terms, that the third person in any family of gods was everywhere and always Shu under a different name. It having been finally admitted in the sacerdotal colleges that Tumu and Shu, father and son, were one, all the divine sons were, therefore, identical with Tumu, the father of Shu, and as each divine son was one with his parents, it inevitably followed that these parents themselves were identical with Tumu. Reasoning in this way, Egyptians naturally tended towards that conception of the divine oneness to which the theory of the Hermopolitan Ogdoad was already leading them. In fact, they reached it, and the monuments show us that in comparatively early times the theologians were busy uniting in a single person the prerogatives which their ancestors had ascribed to many different beings. But this conception of deity towards which their ideas were converging has nothing in common with the conception of the god of our modern religions and philosophies. No god of the Egyptians was ever spoken of simply as god. Tumu was the one and only god, Nutu u'au a'uiti, at Heliopolis. Anhuri Shu was also the one and only god, at Sebenitos and at Thinis. The unity of Atunu did not interfere with that of Anhuri Shu, but each of these gods, although the sole deity in his own domain, ceased to be so in the domain of the other. The feudal spirit, always alert and jealous, prevented the higher dogma which was dimly apprehended in the temples from triumphing over local religions and extending over the whole land. Egypt had as many sole deities as she had large cities, or even important temples. She never accepted the idea of the sole god, beside whom there is none other. End of chapter 2 End of section 16 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.